everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this, the 47th session of our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we reach the dead marshes in the company of Frodo and Sam and Gollum. There's a lot to discuss in this episode. This is where we get the real conflict at the heart of Gollum slash Smeagol, this horrific, torn, and tragic figure who rests right at the very heart of, of Tolkien's Legendarium here at the end of the Third Age. It is not, I think, overstating the case to say that Gollum is representative, that Gollum literally embodies many, if not all, of the major themes that we've been looking at through the course of the Two Towers in particular, particularly that theme of choice, that theme of decision-making, and the ways in which our decisions can be influenced by forces outside of our control and the ways in which our influences can the ways in which our decisions rather can be positive and yet turn to ill or negative and yet turn to good that ultimately there is a goodness in the world so Tolkien here asserts that lies outside of each of our own conscious controls we're going to be looking a lot at Gollum and also of course at Frodo and Sam but we're going to begin with a little look at the dead marshes let me cancel that slide and raise our uh our frequent resource here on There and Back Again, lotrproject.com. I wanted to give you guys just a quick gloss of the geography that we're going to be covering. Here on the slide, you can see to the west, you can see the River Anduin here coursing down from the north. You can see... Um, you can see uh, Parthgallen here at the, the southern tip of Nenhithoel. We've got Ar the Argonoth is here at the northern tip of the lake. We've got Amon Hen and Tolbrandir and Amon Law kind of bracketing the southern extent of the lake there. That's where Parthgallen is. That's where the fellowship broke. Then Frodo and Sam marched east through these hills, up through the Emin Mool, and are now descending back down into the Dead Marshes. You can see on the other side of the Dead Marshes, Moranon, the Black Gate. More on that next week. Next week's reading is going to be really fun, you guys, because we get to my favorite character in the entirety of The Lord of the Rings. We're going to be talking just a little bit about Faramir next week and the week after, in fact. And of course, here further to the east, you can see Daggerlad, the battle plane. This is where the Battle of the Last Alliance uh, concluded the Second Age. This is where Sauron fell to Isildur's assault and uh, the ring was reclaimed. That should have brought peace, should have brought peace to the world of Middle-earth, and yet, as we know, didn't. So that's where we are right now, all the way there in the west, of course, you can see just on the very fringes of that uh, that slide, Nankurinir and Isengard, you can see the Gap of Rohan there, Helm's Deep, Edoras, you can see where the other action of, of the two towers has been taking place, but now we're focused here further on the east, descending from the Emin Mool into the Dead Marshes. The Dead Marshes are in part... Uh, part of the battlefield of, of the Battle of the Last Alliance. They, uh, the, the Dead Marshes, there's an interesting ambiguity about the Dead Marshes, whether or not they have always been marshland or that the marshes have encroached upon part of the battlefield. There was an, an ebb and flow, I suppose, to the movement of the marshes there, a, a tidal movement of the marshes there that has, of course, claimed the bodies of many of the fallen, not just men and elves, but orcs too. The Gollum will tell us in this chapter, and this is a detail I think that is oftentimes over overlooked, Gollum will tell us in this chapter that those bodies are not there. These are just visions of the dead that are contained within the dead marshes rather than actual bodies suspended beneath the water. It is harrowing, of course, and does speak, I, as much as I am loath to kind of draw direct comparisons back to Tolkien's personal experience, back to the autobiographical detail of the professor's life, obviously there are some connections between the events of the Lord of the Rings in particular and his personal experiences in the First World War. And I think that this detail 
stands apart from all others as being most probably autobiographical. That is to say that this experience of seeing dead bodies beneath the water, this experience of seeing, of seeing the fallen in long uh, declined and decayed repose beneath the waters, that this probably does speak to Tolkien's personal experience in the Battle of the Somme in particular in the days of the First World War. So it's it's grim. It is a grim, uh, a grim landscape and a grim foreboding of what comes next for Frodo and Sam. Let me cancel that slide and move back to our... Uh, to our real slides, as it were, to our textual slides, because we begin this chapter with Gollum's song and a throwback to, uh, to happier times, to easier times, to more innocent times back in the pages of The Hobbit. Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, in fact, as we get what is, in effect, a recapitulation of Gollum's fish riddle. Here's our slide. He led the way, and following him, the hobbits climbed down into the gloom. It was not difficult, for the rift at this point was only some fifteen feet deep and about a dozen across. There was running water at the bottom. It was, in fact, the bed of one of the many small rivers that trickled down from the hills to feed the stagnant pools and mires beyond. Gollum turned to the right, southward, more or less, and splashed along with his feet in the shallow, stony stream. He seemed greatly delighted to feel the water and chuckled to himself, sometimes even croaking in a sort of a song. The cold, hard lands, they bites our hands, they gnaws our feet. The rocks and stones are like old bones, all bare of meat. But stream and pool is wet and cool, so nice for feet. And now we wish... Ah, what does we wish? He said, looking sidelong at the hobbits. We'll tell you, he croaked. He guessed it long ago. Baggins guessed it. A glint came into his eyes, and Sam, catching the gleam in the darkness, thought it far from pleasant. Gollum, of course, spent many years, spent centuries deep beneath the Misty Mountains, deep in his subterranean lake, where we are told in the pages of The Hobbit he had a little boat upon which he would silently traverse the lake seeking fish. He would lift the fish out of the cold, dark water and eat them raw. This was as close to a period of peace that Gollum has ever known, though, of course, we're reminded in the pages of The Hobbit, too, that he really preferred goblin meat when he could get it. He would hunt solitary goblins, but never wanted to bring down their wrath upon him, vulnerable as he was, even deep beneath Goblin Town under the Misty Mountains. But here, Go uh, Gollum even acknowledges the, the callback to his time beneath the Misty Mountains, acknowledges the callback to the riddle game in Chapter 5 of The Hobbit. He guessed it long ago, Baggins guessed it. The riddle that we get from Gollum back in Chapter 5 of The Hobbit is simply this. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. That is the riddle that he presents to Bilbo, which of course Bilbo solves. Um, oh, Katie's having some trouble with the sound. Oh no, I hope this isn't uh, a product of the wiring problem, but everyone else is saying it's fine. Okay, good. It's, it's a difficult task, just making all of this thrown-together technology work for broadcasting on the internet. It is not always as easy as it should be, but I hope that it's all working out and that you guys can hear me properly, yes. Seastar says, It's odd that Gollum craves the food he's eaten for centuries, but connecting those memories to a time of peace makes it make more sense. Yeah, that's certainly my reading, and, and also just a... Just a limit to, to, to Gollum's ambition. I mean, we'll see this much more clearly later in the reading when he begins talking about... He gets his 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 uh, ring-induced series of rationalizations, right? He gets his little monologue where he begins to see himself as Gollum the Great, the Gollum, uh, fish for, uh, he'll eat fish, fresh fish, three times a day, you know? We'll look at all of that when we get to it, but I do think it ties back to this period of, this period of peace, where Gollum got, in a sense, what it was that he wanted, which was to live unmolested beneath the Misty Mountains with the precious, 
more on that later. Let's get to the second half of Gollum's song as we look at uh, what it is exactly he's referring to. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsting, ever drinking, clad in mail, never clinking, drowns on dry land, thinks an island is a mountain, thinks a fountain is a puff of air, so sleek, so fair, what a joy to meet, we only wish to catch a fish so juicy, sweet. This is the expanded version of the riddle that Gollum gave to, uh, gave to Bilbo, of course, and it's interesting that it does seem very much to be a song of Gollum's own creation. That is, it does everything that the riddle did. It shows not a healthy ecosystem in which the fish are, are, are prospering, in which the fish are, are living, fulfilling fish lives, whatever that represents. We see a fish in torment. We see this external perspective of suffering and tragedy, alive without breath. We see that paradox there, as cold as death, alive but as cold as death, never thirsting, ever drinking, clad in mail, never clinking, drowns on dry land. These are paradoxical, paradoxical perverse elements that we associate with the existence of the fish beneath the Misty Mountains, though of course the existence of the fish beneath the Misty Mountains, albeit in absolute darkness there in Gollum's little cave, um, this is a completely natural phenomenon, and yet to Gollum's eyes it is it is a perversity, it is a corruption of, of the natural order of things, fish themselves are a corruption of the natural order of things, and yet they are uh, corrupt creatures which appeal to Gollum. He feasts upon them gleefully, kind of feeding his own corruption, as it were, feeding his own sense of, of darkness. And here is Zimbardo's calling out here, another hobbitish thing about Gollum. Yeah, um, unfortunately, we don't have time to do like a very close textual read of Gollum's poem here. It isn't quite in the Hobbit form. That is to say, it isn't quite in that that regular, regular rhyming couplet iambic pattern that we see from Hobbits, going all the way back to the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, and even to a certain extent, all the way back to the Hobbit. But there is a certain similarity there. And we noticed that even when we were calling out the the poetry of the riddles back in chapter five of The Hobbit. There was, even then, even in its original conception, long before we came to the revised version of, of uh, chapter five, which saw, you know, the, the main focus of Tolkien's revisions prior to the publication of The Lord of the Rings, even before that, even in the first version of that chapter, we saw a great similarity between, Frodo, uh, between Bilbo, excuse me, and Gollum. Tolkien was drawing a subconscious connection there between these two individuals, even before we knew that Gollum had originally been a hobbitish, hobbit-like, hobbitesque creature. Yeah. So that is our song, but that is not the end of our discussion of food and hunger. We must take a little food, said Frodo. Are you hungry, Smeagol? We have very little to share, but we will spare what we can. At the word hungry, a greenish light was kindled in Gollum's pale eyes, and he seemed to protrude further than ever from his thin, sickly face. For a moment he relapsed into his old Gollum manner. We are famished, yes, famished we are, precious, he said. What is it they eat? Have they nice fishes? His tongue lolled out between his sharp yellow teeth, licking his colorless lips. No, we have got no fish, said Frodo. We have only got this. He held up a wafer of lembas. And water, if the water here is fit to drink? Yes, yes, nice water, said Gollum. Drink it, drink it while we can. But what is it they've got, precious? Is it crunchable? Is it tasty? Frodo broke off a portion of the wafer and handed it to him on its leaf wrapping. Gollum sniffed at the leaf and his face changed. A spasm of disgust came over it and a hint of his old malice. Smeagol smells it, he said. Leaves out of the elf country. God, they stinks. He climbed in those trees and he couldn't wash the smell off his hands. My nice hands. 
Dropping the leaf, he took a corner of the lambus and nibbled it. He spat, and a fit of coughing shook him. Ah, no, he spluttered. You try to choke poor Smeagol. Dust and ashes, he can't eat this. He must starve. But Smeagol doesn't mind. Nice hobbits, Smeagol has promised. He will starve. He can't eat a hobbit's food. He will starve. Poor, thin Smeagol. I'm sorry, said Frodo, but I can't help you, I'm afraid. I think this food would do you good if you would try. But perhaps you can't even try. Not yet, anyway. I have always been struck, not just by Frodo's kindness, of course, but Frodo's wisdom, Frodo's discernment of the conflict which rages within Gollum at this point. But perhaps you can't even try. Not yet, anyway, he says. He is discerning within Gollum the possibility of, well, if not redemption outright, then certainly the possibility of healing, the possibility of some kind of restoration. There is no hope for Gollum as Gandalf told us back in chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, but no ho- uh, but, but little hope is not no hope, right? There is still some spark of something, and now, now that he has beheld Gollum himself, now that he is feeling the pity which he discussed with Gandalf so long ago, Frodo is hoping for hope. Frodo is hoping for this restitution. He is hoping for this, this drawing back into the mortal realm, drawing back into a, a mundane world of light and of goodness and of elven magic to some greater extent. The elven magic is hurtful to Smeagol, is hurtful to Gollum, because it is antithetical to the darkness, because it is antithetical to the corruption that has consumed Smeagol, that has turned him into Gollum in a certain sense. But there is still hope. There is still the chance that Gollum can be brought back, and Lambus, of course, being representative of that here. And we see, too, the the variable Gollumness of Gollum, I suppose, is how we can best uh, approach this topic. It's very tempting, I think, to look at Gollum as a, a bifurcated personality. That is to say that two personalities occupy the same physical space within Gollum. There is Gollum and there is Smeagol. There is... There is the more gentle and more hopeful and more good version of this character and the more corrupt, more dangerous, more violent, more aggressive version of this character, more treacherous version of this character, certainly. But I'm not sure that that's an adequate representation. I think if we think of Gollum as being two distinct individuals within the same body, then we're missing many of the subtler aspects of characterization that Tolkien gives us in the course of our understanding of Gollum, in the course of this chapter in particular. And this chapter is a fascinating one because it it really does take a breath. It really does take a moment. We're just really describing the, the traversal of the dead marshes here. And next week, we're going to move back into the, the heart of the main plot, as it were. But in this chapter, we're very, very focused on these beats of character. Not just Gollum, of course, but Frodo and Sam, too. Though Frodo... Frodo to a much lesser extent. We did get some Frodo in the previous chapter. We did get some insight into where he is. And he's certainly going to have a discussion with Sam in just a moment. Um... But Frodo is going to be somewhat obscured from our vision. We are not going to be in Frodo's POV as much as we might expect, but we do get a lot of Sam and we do get a lot of Gollum and we understand the framing of this conflict that is going to carry us forward through the rest of the Two Towers and through the rest of the Return of the King and all the way pretty much to the end of the book, even after we leave Gollum behind, after Gollum's story comes to an end, we're going to continue to address some of these themes, some of these questions of... of 
hurt and healing, some of these questions of corruption and redemption. We're going to be looking very directly at those themes right there at the end of the book. Yes, Heroes and Bard says, and I think this is this is putting it perfectly here, I always saw his personalities as a sliding scale more than two sides of a coin. Yes, less so this, this bifurcated personality and more a tangle of contrary impulses and contrary needs. We're going to look at this very carefully when we get to, uh, I was going to say, to Gollum's monologue. I suppose it is a monologue in a sense, but but his his duologue, I suppose, this conversation between two people that we get later. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Seastar is saying Frodo might have more hope for Smeagol than for himself. You know what? Let's talk about hope. Um, well, okay, we'll talk about hope in just a moment, uh, in just a minute after we talk about uh, Sam waking to find Gollum gone. When he woke up, the sky above was dim, not lighter, but darker than when they had breakfasted. Sam leapt to his feet. Not least from his own feeling of vigor and hunger, he suddenly understood that he had slept the daylight away, nine hours at least. Frodo was still fast asleep, lying now stretched on his side. Gollum was not to be seen. Various reproachful names for himself came to Sam's mind, drawn from the gaffer's large paternal word hoard. Then it also occurred to him that his master had been right. They had, uh, there had been, uh, excuse me, there had for the present been nothing to guard against. They were, at any rate, both alive and unthrottled. Poor wretch, he said half remorsefully. I wonder where he's got to. Not far, not far, said a voice above him. He looked up and saw the shape of Gollum's large head and ears against the evening sky. Here, what are you doing? cried Sam, his suspicions coming back as soon as he saw that shape. Smeagol is hungry, said Gollum. Be back soon. Come back now, shouted Sam. Hi, come back. But Gollum had vanished. Frodo woke at the sound of Sam's shout and sat up, rubbing his eyes. Hello, he said. Anything wrong? What's the time? I don't know, said Sam. After sundown, I reckon, and he's gone off. Says he's hungry. Don't worry, said Frodo. There's no help for it. But he'll come back. You'll see. The promise will hold yet a while. And he won't leave his precious anyway. Frodo made light of it when he learned that they had slept soundly for hours with Gollum and a very hungry Gollum too loose beside them. Don't think of any of your gaffer's hard names, he said. You were worn out, and it has turned out well. We are now both rested, and we have a hard road ahead, the worst road of all. I love the detail here of of Sam's regret and guilt, potentially, at least. A various reproachful names for himself came to Sam's mind, drawn from the gaffer's large paternal word horde. All of the names that the gaffer would use to criticize Sam, to, to lament Sam's more foolish decisions when Sam was a young hobbit. These words now spring unbidden to his mind. Then it occurred to him that his master had been right. There had for the present been nothing to guard against. They were at any rate both alive and unthrottled. So he has this moment of realization where he wakes and he thinks, oh no, we've slept the day away and Gollum was right here and he's been very hungry and terrible things could have happened, but but I suppose they didn't. And then we get a moment of empathy from Sam, a moment of kindness from Sam, a moment in which he at least seems to be unaware of his softening attitude toward Gollum, or a, a momentarily softened attitude toward Gollum. Poor wretch, he said half remorsefully, now I wonder where he's got to. Poor wretch, says Sam of Gollum. And if we're paying close attention to Gollum in the course of this chapter, and we don't want to collapse the possibility space for Gollum's character, if we don't want to necessarily distill Gollum's character out into, hey, he has a good side and a bad side, there are you know good, good Smeagol and evil Gollum contained within this one body, then we also shouldn't collapse Sam's responses, because Sam's responses are just as complex. Here in this moment, he wakes up, is suddenly afraid, is suddenly afright, thinks of these, these terrible reproachful names that his father used for him all the way back in the Shire, and then thinks, well, 
no, but he's gone, and actually we were fine, and actually Gollum didn't throttle us in our sleep. And his first thought, apparently with that kind of conscious framing, is simply, poor wretch. And we know that this is a momentary passing fleeting thing for Sam. We know that this is a, an emergence of Sam's native empathy, I think, in this moment, because when Gollum calls out to him, not far, not far, he looked up and saw the shape of Gollum's large head and ears against the evening sky. Here, what are you doing, cried Sam, his suspicions coming back as soon as he saw that shape. Oh, right, you're Gollum. Oh, right, okay. Now I remember my role in all of this. My role in all of this is to protect Master Frodo. What are you doing up there? What are you doing there silhouetted against the sky? And, of course, Sam continues his suspicions as Gollum goes off to find something to eat. Gollum now referring to himself more often, more frequently, more readily, and more easily as Smeagol. And we might question the degree to which that is a natural consequence of Gollum's conflicted state that he is now in a... Ah, in a more gentle frame of mind, that he is now more restored, that he is now more himself, his original self, than he is or has been for the longest time, that he is forgetting about the suffering that he has, has been exposed to beneath the Misty Mountains ever since finding the ring, really, since being driven out of his home and his community and taking refuge beneath the Misty Mountains, then venturing back out from the Misty Mountains after his precious is taken by Bilbo Baggins, Baggins, we hates it forever, and then being captured by Sauron and taken to the Black Tower and tortured and tormented. Now, those parts of his experience seem to be falling away, and he begins to be more Smeagol-ish. He begins to be more Hobbit-ish, perhaps. He begins to be more his native and natural self. Yeah. Um, Pete says, is this maybe the first ever instance of the trope of someone telling their friend to rest while they, while they watch, then falling asleep themselves? First ever, I would say no. First ever would go a long way back into, into folklore and fable. You know, there are, are numerous examples of this in, in ancient, ancient uh, fairy stories and folklore, and certainly Tolkien would have been pulling on that tradition. But let's look at what actually happens, right? They settle down, they agree to take watch. Frodo says, okay, look, two hours, then wake me. We're just gonna, we'll, we'll take a little siesta here. We'll, we'll regain a little bit of our strength. You watch Gollum, I'll sleep for two hours, then I'll watch Gollum, you can sleep for two hours, then we'll be on our way. That's, that's how this is going to work. But they don't. They fall asleep. But in the end, of course, through their mistake, through their error, through their, their carelessness, through their misfortune, good has arisen. Now they are restored. Now they feel better. Frodo made light of it when he learned that they had slept, uh, slept soundly for hours with Gollum and a very hungry Gollum too, loose beside them. Don't think of any of your gaffer's hard names. And by the way, just to, to pause for a second, Sam does not tell Frodo that that is what he is thinking. Frodo seems to intuit. Again, Frodo seems to discern what it is that Sam is thinking. And there are two possible ways of looking at this, I think. One, heartening and positive and, and really quite beautiful in its way, because the most obvious piece of interpretation that we can do here, I think, is simply that Frodo has known Sam for his entire life. Frodo knows how Sam responds to mistakes. He knows how Sam responds to these moments where he, he feels that he has failed in his duty to his master. So Sam wakes and he starts hearing the voice of the gaffer in his head, calling him all manner of names, I'm sure, from this paternal word horde that he possessed. And Frodo, seeing this, understands, oh, no, Sam, I know what you're doing. I know what you always do when this happens. Don't start thinking of your father's hard words. Start thinking instead of the fact that we had a good long rest and that everything, surprisingly, has turned out pretty well. Hey, we need a word for this, some kind, of, some kind of word related to catastrophe. We need some kind of word that we can use to describe this. Maybe someone someday will come up with a word that we can use for this exact circumstance. So that's one possibility, that Frodo simply knows Sam very well. The other 
is a little more deceptive, a little more difficult to pin down, and certainly a little more difficult to support textually. But it is possible. Frodo, for all of his many great qualities, for all of his his courage and his bravery, for all of his, his indefatigability, for all of his dauntless pursuit of what is right and what must be done, going all the way back to his decision to leave the Shire, right? Remember, Gandalf does not place the burden of the ring upon Frodo. Frodo accepts the quest, and only after Gandalf has told him all of the dangers that await him. No, 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 this is not just Bilbo's magical trinket. This is not just a magical invisibility ring. This is the one ring. This is it. The fate of the world is in the balance. And Frodo says, okay, I'll do this. I'll take this quest. And then again, at the Council of, of Elrond at Rivendell, he has another opportunity there to kind of step back and just, just recede from the council. But no, he steps up and says, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. This is, this is who Frodo is. He is possessed of many great qualities. But wisdom, perhaps, not one of his greatest qualities. An understanding of those people around him, not one of his greatest qualities. He has possessed a certain hobbity intuition, I suppose, a hobbitish intuition. I really need to formalize my use of those words. I, I, I do like just playing with them, though, is the problem. So I, I'm resisting the urge to formalize my use of those words. But let's say hobbitish. Let's settle on hobbitish alongside elvish and dwarvish, I suppose. Although I suppose... Elvish and Dwarvish refer to the languages of the elves and the dwarves, so otherwise we use elven and dwarven, so we should use hobbiton? Hmm. Don't know that I like that very much. Let's go with hobbity, perhaps. Anyway, Frodo is possessed of this intuition. He has a sense, and this is related to the hobbit notions of luck, of course, he has a sense of what is good and what is bad, but now he does seem to be able to discern more carefully, more acutely, more deeply than he has previously. That's evident in his interactions with Gollum here, I think. Is it possible that under the influence of the ring, Frodo is gaining in power? That he is gaining an ability to sense those emotional states around him? That he is beginning to, with uh, a supernatural capability read the minds of those people around him, or, or if not explicitly, at least understand the workings of their heart, understand their internal motivations a little better? Is that why he is so sure of the possibility of hope now for Gollum? He is sensing the conflict within Gollum, sensing still that, that crack through which the light pours. He's sensing that, that spark of hope within Smeagol. Is he also sensing the guilt and, and self-reproaching, you know, self-criticism that he's, he's getting from Sam here? It's possible. Hobbitical? Hobbitical. Hobbitical, I quite like. Yes, hobbitical is, is rather good. Varag of Khan points out he intuits Aragorn's golden character. Yes, and intuits Boromir's somewhat more suspicious character, I suppose. Unlike Merry and Pippin, right? This is, this is another point of differentiation here. Merry and Pippin do not seem to possess the same spark of intuition. They do not seem to, to possess quite the, same, quite the same innate insight. And it may be that Frodo is just an unusual hobbit, that Frodo is a particularly sensitive hobbit in that regard, or it may be a consequence of Frodo's exposure to, to the ring and to the darkness and, and being pulled into prophetic dreams and all, says Varig of Kant. Yes, absolutely. Again, prophetic dreams, not entirely unusual for hobbits. Certainly Bilbo had some exposure to prophetic dreams, to, to, to a certain a certain sense of the world beyond himself. Let's, let's put it that way, a certain supernatural sense. And, and that's, not, that's not incompatible with our understanding of hobbits, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see here. Yes, exactly. Jenna says, Frodo and Sam know each other so well, it doesn't speak so great to the low-key verbal abuse from the gaffer. 
Yeah, I don't love that, I have to say. I don't love it. Uh, Heroes and Bard says, I like to think he gets this from Belladonna Took. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. I think that that, that is, um, that, 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 that may be a Tookish part of his personality, though... Pippin doesn't seem to possess that. Pippin doesn't seem to have that same that same sense of intuition and certainly not the same sense of discernment. You can say many things of Merry and Pippin, but you cannot say so readily that they are wise. Not as wise as Frodo, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, keep moving on here. Was there anything else that I wanted to discuss off of this? Well, okay, a couple of little things that we should probably note. Frodo exhibiting a great wisdom or a great insight. Again, the promise will hold yet a while and he won't leave his precious anyway. I don't like it anytime Frodo refers to the ring as the precious for obvious reasons, and I'm not sure that I love Frodo's understanding of Gollum's heart here. The promise will hold yet a while. Acknowledging both that the promise sworn on the ring, the promise to serve the master of the ring, the master of the precious, that that will hold over Gollum, and that it will hold for a while. It's disquieting, at least, yeah. But let's get into our discussion here of hope and our great conversation between Frodo and Sam. About the food, said Sam. How long is it going to take us to do this job? And when it's done, what are we going to do then? This way bread keeps you on your legs in a wonderful way, though it doesn't satisfy the innards proper, as you might say. Not to my feeling, anyhow, me and no disrespect to them has made it. But, you've got to, but you have to eat some of it every day and it doesn't grow. I reckon we've got enough to last, say, three weeks or so, and that's with a tight belt and a light tooth, mind you. We've been a bit free with it so far. I don't know how long we shall take to to finish, said Frodo. We were miserably delayed in the hills, but Samwise Gamgee, my dear hobbit, indeed Sam, my dearest hobbit, friend of friends, I do not think we need to give thought to what comes after that. To do the job, as you put it, what hope is there that we ever shall? And if we do, who knows what will come of that? If the one goes into the fire and we are at hand, I ask you, Sam, are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do more than, I can, more than I can, I begin to feel. Sam nodded silently. He took his master's hand and bent over it. He did not kiss it, though his tears fell on it. Then he turned away, drew his sleeve over his nose, and got up and stamped about, trying to whistle and saying between the efforts, Where is that dreaded creature? It was actually not long before Gollum returned, but he came so quietly that they did not hear him till he stood before them. His fingers and face were soiled with black mud. He was still chewing and slavering. What he was chewing, they did not think, they did not ask or like to think. Worms or beetles or something slimy out of holes, thought Sam. Brr, nasty creature, the poor wretch. Gollum said nothing to them until he had drunk deeply and washed himself in the stream. Then he came up to them, licking his lips. Better now, he said. Are we rested, ready to go on? Nice hobbits, they sleep beautifully. Trust Smeagol now? Very, very good. So much to discuss here, so much to discuss. So, first off, the food, the lembus, the whey bread. It'll keep you on your feet, but it doesn't satisfy the innards proper. And more importantly, it doesn't grow. I reckon we've got enough to last, say, three weeks or so, and that with a tight belt and a light tooth, mind you, we've been a bit free with it so far. Sam there, of course, regretting, as Sam regrets, the decisions of past Sam. Still thinking, oh, but I could have done better. Still aspiring to do better in the service of his master. We should have rationed more carefully. We should have prepared more carefully. What are we going to do about the food situation? And then Frodo speaks honestly, more honestly than since leaving Parthgallon, perhaps more honestly since the breaking of the fellowship, certainly, I think, more honestly since they've encountered Gollum. Here, Frodo lays out exactly what awaits them. 
We were miserably delayed in the hills, but Samwise Gamgee, my dear hobbit, indeed, Sam, my dearest hobbit, friend of friends, I do not think we need to give thought to what comes after that. To do the job, as you put it, what hope is there that we ever shall? And if we do, who knows what will come of that? Okay, so there are two issues that we're addressing here. Can we accomplish our goal? Can we survive the aftermath? Well, okay, what hope is there that we shall do the job? To do the job, as you put it, what hope is there that we ever shall? And if we do, who knows what will come of that? The and if we do? suggests, in fact, that there is some hope. There is not no hope, as it were. If the one goes into the fire and we are at hand, I ask you, Sam, are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. So Frodo has two issues arrayed before him and has some hope invested in one and no hope at all invested in the other. He is certain at this point. The I think not indicates that certainty here. There is a small hope, Sam, still, even now, there is a small hope that we can make it to Mount Doom, that we can cast the, cast the ring, cast the one into the fire and accomplish our goal. And after that, well, we're not going to escape. We're not going to get away from Mount Doom. We're not going to get back out of Mordor. We're sure as hell never going to get home to the Shire again. Let's not be crazy. We knew what this job was when we took it. And with every step that we take closer to Mordor, it is becoming more and more clear what this job is. This was never going to be a there and back again journey. And of course, textually, that has been framed ever since Frodo left the Shire. The shape of this journey is very different. It was never going to be a there and back again journey. It was always going to be a, well, a suicide mission. There is a hope that they can accomplish their goal. And let's remember, let, let's kind of put this in context, because it's very easy, I think, to get caught up in in the kind of uh, narrative concept, particularly for, for modern literate, you know, fantasy literate in particular readers, we look at this and we say, oh, of course, a million to one chance. Well, those, as Terry Pratchett tells us in the pages of Guards, Guards, million to one chances crop up nine times out of ten. Is it sufficiently unlikely? That's the real question. Is it really a million to one chance or is it actually like a 50-50 chance? Is there really a hope here? Because if, it's, if there's a real hope, then things might go very badly. But if there's almost no hope, then you're sure to win through because that's how stories work. But even back in the Council of Elrond at Rivendell, the great advantage of this plan, the great advantage of sending the Hobbit off to Mordor to dispose of the ring into the fires of Mount Doom was that it was completely insane. This was never the, the sound strategic plan. This was the Hail Mary Pass. This was the last desperate gamble that has for its chief hope of success its own lunacy. The fact that the Dark Lord would never expect this, would never expect him to, to A, try to destroy the ring, and B, try to destroy the ring in the fires of, of Mount Doom anyway. It's, it's insane. And because of that insanity, they've got this far. And because of that insanity, there is still a slim hope that they may prevail. There is still a slim hope for Frodo at this point. But there is now no hope of returning afterward. There is now no hope of escaping, and that doesn't matter. And this, I think, is why Frodo has this moment of... Gosh, of something like communion. It's something like, it, it's not even quite condescension, though condescension in this moment would be 
a beautiful and, and fragile and precious thing, right? It would be a, a, a thing of, of unutterable nobility for Frodo to, to condescend to Sam at this point. But he isn't even doing that. Sam, my good and faithful servant, he might say, you who have served me so well to the, the, the greatest of your ability, a better servant no hobbit has ever had than you, Sam. That is an act of condescension. That is Frodo looking down from his high place to Sam in his low place and commending him on his nature and on his purpose and on his faithfulness. That would be an act of condescension and that would be a beautiful thing. But what we get from Frodo is something different. It's almost a recognition now that, that their relationship has changed. It's almost a recognition now that he is less Sam's master than he has ever been more Sam's friend, more Sam's comrade, but also less in some senses. He is less Frodo Baggins of the Shire. He is less a gentle hobbit than he has ever been. He is now turning into something else. And of course, that is the great risk of fairy. We venture forth into fairy from the mundane realm and we are transformed by it. Frodo has been transformed in any number of ways from the, the drinking of elven, uh, the consumption, I suppose, more generally of, of elven food and drink, the passing through Lothlorien, of course, the wound from the Morgul blade, the, the confrontation with the Nazgul, all of these various blessings and blights that he has endured have changed him. Frodo has been transformed. Sam, crucially, has not. Samwise Gamgee, my dear hobbit, indeed Sam, my dearest hobbit, friend of friends. Here he is partially elevating Sam, though to elevate Sam outright would be actually somewhat insulting, would be actually, you know, a, a rejection, a repudiation of the actual social order in which Sam himself is so very well invested, right? It's not saying, Sam, you're not a servant. Sam, you stand with me. We are alike, you and I. That would actually be, I think, a little insulting to Sam at this point. No, Master Frodo, I am your servant and I'm the best one. Like, I have, I have served you well. I am going to continue to serve you well. That is what Sam does. That is, that is who Sam is. And we'll talk more about why that is in just a moment. Here, Frodo is elevating Sam, but also not even necessarily reducing himself, but stepping back from himself. He is no longer a part of Hobbit social order. That seems to be absolutely clear. Um, let me see. In his acceptance, says Heroes and Bards, Frodo has accepted his fate and is trying to help Sam to get to the acceptances that they are sure to die. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, as Seastar points out, the book talks more explicitly about hope and despair next chapter in a way I, I recently found fascinating. Yes, the next few chapters are, are just fantastic. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yes. Frodo is just tender to Sam here. Friend of friends, says Jenna. He's not treating him as an equal exactly, but they are in this together. Jenna, that's a great observation. Yes, I think that that's exactly it. And Frodo, of course, as I say, laying out this, this argument of hope and, and the lack of hope, hope and despair, right? Remember what Gandalf says about despair? Despair is when you know the outcome certainly. Despair is when you know that there is no hope. It's not like this, this challenge to your hope. It's not the fracturing of your hope or the assault upon your hope. Despair comes when you know the outcome beyond the shadow of a doubt. And we do not. And still here, Frodo and Sam do not, at least Frodo and Sam do not know the outcome beyond a shadow of a doubt vis-a-vis -vis the destruction of the ring and the crack of doom but they do know the outcome, or at least Frodo believes that he knows the outcome vis-a-vis -vis their continued existence and survival. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do. More than I can, I begin to feel, Frodo concludes. Sam nodded silently. He took his master's hand and bent over it. He did not kiss it, though his tears fell on it. 
Then he turned away, drew his sleeve over his nose, and got up and stamped about, trying to whistle and saying between the efforts, where's that dratted creature? Sam here seeking refuge in, in physical action, in, in bluster, in a show of, of confidence, a show of, of immediacy, a show of action here. But that moment of tenderness between Frodo and Sam is enormously poignant and enormously important. Why is Sam with Frodo? There will be other opportunities for us to discuss this as we move through the rest of the book, but this really is following the breaking of the Fellowship and certainly following the introduction of Gollum and, and the, the introduction of this side of Sam's character, this more defensive and protective side of Sam's character. This is a really great opportunity to begin to consider this question. What is it that drives Samwise Gamgee? Why is he here? He wanted to go with Frodo, and that desire to go with Frodo, and I'm thinking in particular of, of uh, the Council of Elrond here rather than the departure from the Shire. Of course, the departure from the Shire, we get elves, sir, but we also get the punishment of Gandalf being levied against Sam. Oh, well, this is your punishment for eavesdropping. You're going with him. That's it. And Sam is conflicted. He's joyous, but also, as you'll recall, bursts into tears back there at the end of, of chapter two of the Fellowship of the Ring. But at the Council of Elrond, Sam can't imagine Frodo not taking him. And that is not about their odds of success, their, their chances of winning through to, to Mordor here. Sam doesn't say, Master Frodo, you've got to take me with you because without me, you'll never make it. No, he doesn't increase the chances of success for this quest at all. He's there to serve Frodo and he's there to serve Frodo because he loves Frodo. This is, and we will get a much stronger opportunity to talk about this in the next chapter when Sam acknowledges, or I guess the narrator acknowledges on Sam's behalf that actually Sam never had any hope. Actually, no, Sam never believed this was going to work out. He never hoped that they were going to make it to Mordor. He never believed that they were going to make it to Mount Doom. He never believed that they were going to escape with their lives. He never had that, but it didn't matter because he could hold off despair. He just didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to confront their inevitable failure because, well, he's already doing what he set out to do. Frodo's journey from Rivendell in particular is, is a journey toward an endpoint. It is a journey toward a goal. This entire journey has been about the destruction of the ring. Frodo can succeed or can fail, but those things lie in the future. Sam, blessed Sam, is succeeding every single day. He is accomplishing his goal every single day because his goal has only ever been to care for Master Frodo. It has never been about, I'll go with you, Master Frodo, and I'll make sure that you come home to the Shire safe and sound, and we'll go live in Crick Hollow, and it'll be great. That's never been Sam's agenda. He just wants to be there to care for Frodo in the present, which is why he's able to defer these thoughts of despair. I, he's never had... Okay, you know what? Actually, we'll put a pin in this because I do have a hard out today, and we can't really spend too much time talking about something that's in next week's reading when we'll have the chance to look at the scripts, uh, uh, look at the, the, the passages properly and... Uh, and do this, yeah. Yes, exactly. Seastar is, is quoting, being a cheerful hobbit, he had not needed hope. Yes. He was able to keep despair away because, and the narration doesn't quite call this out, because he is accomplishing his goal, because his goal is in the here and the now. He is caring for Master Frodo. He is demonstrating for Frodo love. The three great Christian virtues, the three great kind of theological virtues, the three great philosophical virtues, which informed the life and, and works of J.R.R. Tolkien, in addition to informing, you know, most people, uh, the, the personal experience and, and, and kind of autobiographical detail of most people of faith, the three great Christian virtues, faith, hope, and charity, by which we mean love, the extension of love to the others in our lives, the extension of 
of, of empathy, yes, pity, yes, when it's called upon, mercy, yes, when it's called upon, all of these things spring forth from that common font, faith, hope, and love, or charity. Sam doesn't need faith, doesn't need hope, because he has love. And it is not, though I understand very much the modern temptation to read into this, it is not a romantic love between Frodo and Sam. It is not, there's nothing in the text that suggests that it is a romantic love. Even the desire here to, to, to kiss, right? He's, he's taking Frodo's hand and he does not kiss it, but his tears fall upon it. The kissing of the hand there is not a romantic gesture. It is a gesture of, of, of fealty and of service. It is a gesture of profound respect. That is, that is the moment that we're in. And the fact that Sam hesitates may well indicate that actually he's feeling this thing that Frodo was feeling too, that their relationship isn't quite master and servant anymore, that it isn't quite what it was when they left the Shire, what it was even when they left Lothlorien, excuse me, um, that their, their relationship has changed because, crucially, Frodo has changed. Sam, well, Sam has not and will never change. Sam is constant. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's, um, let's, I'm just scanning back through the Crowdcast chat. Yes. All right. We'll talk more about that next week when we get to it. But uh, for now, that will do it. So this is, yes, our discussion of, uh, of, of hope and hopelessness, the, the chances of getting to Mount Doom in the first place, the chances of escaping from Mount Doom thereafter. Things are looking pretty grim, you guys, but we are going to push on no matter what. Let's take a look at the Dead Marsh itself and the, uh, the marsh lights, the corpse candles here. This is, this is disquieting. Presently, it grew altogether dark. The air itself seemed black and heavy to breathe. When lights appeared, Sam rubbed his eyes. He thought his head was going queer. He first saw one with the corner of his left eye, a wisp of pale sheen that faded away, but others appeared soon after, some like dimly shining smoke, some like misty flames flickering slowly above unseen candles. Here and there they twisted like ghostly sheets unfurled by hidden hands, but neither of his companions spoke a word. At last Sam could bear it no longer. "'What's all this, Gollum?' he said in a whisper. "'These lights! They're all around us now! Are we trapped? Who are they?' Gollum looked up. A dark water was before him, and he was crawling on the ground this way and that, doubtful of the way. Yes, they are all around us, he whispered. The Trixie lights, candles of corpses, yes, yes, don't you heed them, don't look, don't follow them, where's the master? Sam looked back and found that Frodo had lagged again. He could not see him. He went some paces back into the darkness, not daring to move far or to call in more than a hoarse whisper. Suddenly he stumbled against Frodo, who was standing lost in thought, looking at the pale lights. His hands hung stiff at his sides. Water and slime were dripping from them. "'Come, Master Frodo,' said Sam. "'Don't look at them. Gollum says we mustn't. Let's keep up with him and get out of this cursed place as quick as we can. If we can.' "'All right,' said Frodo, as if returning out of a dream. I "'I'm coming. Go on.' Hurrying forward again, Sam tripped, catching his foot in some old root or tussock. He fell and came heavily on his hands, which sank deep into sticky ooze, so that his face was brought close to the surface of the dark mirror. There was a faint hiss. A noisome smell went up. The lights flickered and danced and swirled. For a moment, the water below him looked like some window glazed with grimy, excuse me, glazed with grimy glass through which he was peering. Wrenching his hands out of the bog, he sprang back with a cry. There are dead things! Dead faces in the water! He said with horror. Dead faces! Gollum laughed. In the dead marshes, yes, yes, that is their name, he cackled. You should not look in when the candles are lit. 
here, of course, let's acknowledge this first, just so we can kind of bracket the real world part of this discussion. Tolkien is acknowledging a real world phenomenon, or at least an accounted phenomenon, a, a piece of, of folklore, a piece of, of the, the rural legendarium, I suppose. The existence of corpse lights, marsh lights, corpse candles, these are naturally occur again, okay naturally occurring phenomena which are attested by many many people through many many centuries oftentimes associated with marshes of course swamp lights swamp gas that kind of thing also associated with graveyards and and uh and and burial places particularly those places well, i guess less graveyards than burial places right former battlefields are oftentimes associated with corpse lights and corpse candles but usually swamps and I think oftentimes of the depiction of this in the movie, I don't love the depiction of this in the Two Towers movie, I have to say, because it feels a little more, a little more fire swamp and a little less dead marshes, right? It's, it's more about the flame spouts in, the, in the, the fire swamp in the Princess Bride. That's less impressive to me than this kind of much more eerie and much more otherworldly phenomena. And it's absolutely appropriate that this be an eerie and otherworldly phenomena. I cannot be a phenomenon. I cannot be the only person reading this who thinks of... The Barrowites and the Barrow Downs, after leaving the house of Tom Bombadil and crossing to the north, trying to get to Bree, we have, well, a not dissimilar encounter. And again, Frodo finds himself here for maybe the third time, I think, if we include Old Man Willow, right? If we include Old Man Willow and the, the Barrowites and now the Dead Marshes, this is the third time that Frodo has found himself kind of bewitched. He has found himself enchanted by something like fairy, something like a supernatural realm. Yeah. Seastar says, I like learning that the dead marshes are named for the shades of corpses in them, since the marshes themselves aren't dead, but inhabited by living plants and animals. Yes, we'll cap that when we get right to the end of the chapter, and Tolkien acknowledges there are worse things even than this marsh. Yes. <laughs> Janet says, Frodo wanders off constantly. Yes. Um, yes, because, though, I don't necessarily think that that is a... I suppose we didn't talk about this way back when we were we were discussing well to a certain extent we did because of course we talked about the influence of the ring and we talked about frodo's desire to rationalize his own action less so when it comes to old man willow but certainly by the time we get to the barrow whites we're kind of conscious of the influence of the ring on frodo the reason that frodo is more susceptible to these phenomena it seems to me is that frodo is more in the wraith world that he is less anchored in the mundane realm than his companions Certainly that's true with Old Man Willow, right? Remember Sam at Old Man Willow? He barely falls under the spell of Old Man Willow at all and seems, even when it is happening, to be conscious that he's falling under a spell. That's a powerful part. So he races back. He goes off to get the ponies and then races back and rescues Frodo. And then they work together to, to try to free Marion Pippin before Tom Bombadil comes back. But Sam is barely affected at all. Sam's experience of the Barrowdowns? We never get, because we're so deeply in Frodo's POV at that point. We don't know quite what happened to Sam when we, we hit the Barrow Downs and we're consumed by that, that cloying mist. Here, Sam is falling more under the influence of, of the supernatural, of, of this dark and malevolent and gothic kind of fairy. This is not the kind of fairy that we associate with the elves, though it is not distinct from the kind of fairy we associate with the elves, if we can kind of combine those two ideas. The elves are more natural than this within the frame of, of Middle-earth, but are not, th there is a continuity between these two experiences, at least, yeah. Yes, Heroes and Bard says, this is why Frodo needs Sam to keep him on the path. This is more to do with him being stabbed, uh, stabbed than the ring at this point, though, yes? Yes, though I would argue that those two things are, are ultimately compatible, right? I think that 
what began with his possession of the ring has been exacerbated by being stabbed by the Morgul blade back at back at Weathertop and the, the lingering effect of that. But yet he's also just a ring bearer, right? Gollum was never stabbed by a Morgul blade. It was just possession of the ring that did this to him. Bilbo was never stabbed by a Morgul blade. It was just possession of the ring that, that changed him too very slowly over the years that drew him like butter stretched over too much bread, spread over too much bread, right? He's just less, less immediately and physically hobbity than he used to be. And the same now is happening to Frodo too. This, I think, is why Frodo falls more readily under this than than either Merry or Pippin or Sam. Right? Sam is Frodo and Sam bracketing this this particular spectrum here, I suppose. Frodo very much outside of the mundane realm, very much in the wraith world here. Sam quite the contrary. Sam much less exposed to to that kind of of magic and malevolence. Yeah, it's it's very very gross. I'm particularly disturbed by that beat when he returns to Frodo. Right? Um, suddenly he stumbled against Frodo, who was standing lost in thought, looking at the pale lights. His hands hung stiff at his sides. Water and slime were dripping from them. What was Frodo doing? What was Frodo doing that there is water and slime dripping from his hands at this point? What were the, march, the marsh lights, what were the corpse candles going to incite Frodo to do in this moment? What was going to happen to him? We never really get an address of, of what would have happened. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, so that is our exposure to marsh lights we have. Let me see here. Well, we have five more five more slides to get through in the next half hour, and two of those slides are very, very important indeed. So let's keep pushing ever onward here. This takes us to, this is a really interesting slide. I, I pulled this um, partly because of the insight that it gives us to the characters, but I would urge you as we're reading this to look at the structure. Look at the structure of this passage. It's gorgeous. And this is actually offset in paragraphs from the rest of the book. We get what is in effect, Tolkien plays a little fast and loose with this in, in the, the typesetting for The Lord of the Rings, but we get what is in effect a scene break before this and a scene break right after it. This is a self-contained little vignette here. And look at the structure of this passage. From that time on, Sam thought that he sensed a change in Gollum again. He was more fawning and would be friendly, but Sam surprised some strange looks in his eyes at times, especially toward Frodo. And he, excuse me, and he went back more and more into his old manner of speaking. And Sam had another growing anxiety. Frodo seemed to be weary, weary to the point of exhaustion. He said nothing. Indeed, he hardly spoke at all. And he did not complain, but he walked like one who carries a load, the weight of which is ever increasing. And he dragged along slower and slower, so that Sam had often to beg Gollum to wait and not to leave their master behind. In fact, with every step toward the gates of Mordor, Frodo felt the ring on his chain around its neck grow more burned, around his neck grow more burdensome. He was now beginning to feel it as an actual weight dragging him earthwards. But far more he was troubled by the eye, so he called it to himself. It was more than the drag of the ring that made him cower and stoop as he walked. The eye, that horrible growing sense of a hostile will that strove with great power to pierce all shadows of cloud and earth and flesh and to see you to pin you under its deadly gaze, naked, immovable, so thin, so frail and thin, the veins were become, excuse me, the veils that were become, the veils were become that still, I'm sorry, I'm getting caught up here because I'm half looking at the Crowdcast chat as I'm trying to read, which is a mistake, so I'm going to not look at the Crowdcast chat and finish the slide. So thin, so frail and thin the veils were become that still warded it off. Frodo knew just where the present habitation and heart of that, that will now was. As certain as a man can tell the direction of the sun with his eyes shut, he was facing it, and its potency beat upon his brow. Gollum probably felt something of the same sort. But what went on in his wretched heart between the pressure of the eye and the lust for the ring that was so near and his groveling promise made half in the fear of cold iron the hobbits did not guess. 
Frodo gave no thought to it. Sam's mind was mostly occupied with his master, hardly noticing the dark cloud that had fallen over his own heart. He put Frodo in front of him now, and kept a watchful eye on every movement of his, supporting him if he stumbled, and trying to encourage him with clumsy words. So in a sense, we get three paragraphs here and three different focal points. We get a focus on Sam, we get a focus on Frodo, and then we get the absence of a focus on Gollum here in the third uh, paragraph. Pete asks, if Frodo and Gollum can feel the presence of Sauron, can Sauron feel the presence of the ring? Well, mm, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. Sauron can feel the presence of the ring, but I do not think that that comes with a GPS coordinate. I do not think that it even necessarily comes with, with uh, the, the constant indication of a compass needle. I think he can feel it growing closer, but does not yet know where it is. If he knew where it was, then, I mean, practically, he would be able to mobilize orcs and mobilize the Nazgul to come get it. You know, it wouldn't be that hard. But also, if he knew where it was, the Nazgul, it seems to me, would not be flying, the Nazgul would not be flying in these patrol routes out over the Amon Mool, out over the Dead Marshes, out over the plain of Dagorlad, out over, you know, the, the surrounding lands of Mordor. So yes, I believe he feels that it's coming closer. Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, Seastar says, the paucity of perspective can be annoying, but it's part of what makes Gollum so mysterious. I like very much that we're just withholding ourselves from Gollum here, because we're going to move from this into the closest account that we get of Gollum's emotional state at the moment. But we're going to get that from Sam's POV, right? It's going to be in attributed dialogue. Sam is still going to be our focal character here. And look at how fully Sam has begun to dominate the text. As I said right at the beginning of today's session, Frodo is retreating from the narrative perspective. That is to say that, that the book itself is now following Sam more and more closely. We are more intimately connected to Sam than we have ever been and less intimately connected to Frodo than we have ever been. As Frodo himself retreats, treats as Frodo himself feels the weight, the great burdensome weight of the ring that drags him slowly earthward and the positive pressure of the eye, this, this fearsome sense that he is being hunted, that he is going to be pinned naked and immovable, so thin, so frail and thin the veils were become that still warded it off. They're shrouded from the eye right now, but there's nothing really there. There's, there's a, a gossamer mist between Frodo and the, the unmatched might of Barador now, the, the will of Sauron itself. And he knows that as he's drawing close, closer, it is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. So look at what Sam is observing in Gollum. He was more fawning and would be friendly, but Sam surprised some strange looks in his eyes at times, especially toward Frodo, and he went back more and more into his old manner of speaking. So Gollum is becoming simply more Gollum. In, in both senses, I think. Sam is suspicious. We're in Sam's POV, and as we're going to see in Gollum, or mm, not in Gollum's POV, but as we're going to see from Gollum in the very next slide, Gollum is more conflicted now than he has, in fact, ever been. Sam is reading this as, as uh, an act. He is reading this as, as, as pretense. He was more fawning and would-be friendly. Right? Sam is attributing to Gollum a malevolent attempt to manipulate Frodo here. But Sam surprised some strange looks in his eyes at times, especially toward Frodo. Excuse me, and he went back more and more into his old manner of speaking. Sam had another growing anxiety. Okay, so firstly, Gollum is getting worse. He's getting more dangerous from Sam's POV. That may not be objectively true, but to Sam, that is clearly the case. Sam had another growing anxiety. Frodo seemed to be weary, weary to the point of exhaustion. He said nothing, indeed, he hardly spoke at all. He's withdrawing. He did not complain, but he walked like one who carries a load. And then we transition into Frodo's POV here. In fact, with every step toward the gates of Mordor, Frodo felt the ring on his chain around his neck grow more burdensome. Oh, Sam's 
bang on, it turns out, when it comes to Frodo. Sam absolutely understands what his master is going through right now. Frodo is faltering under the weight of the ring and also the presence of the eye. Frodo knew just where the present habitation and heart of that will now was. As certainly as a man can tell the direction of the sun with his eyes shut, he was facing it, and its potency beat upon his brow in exactly that way as the sun can fall upon you like a hammer blow in the height of summer. You know, I'm thinking more of life here in, in Oklahoma than, you know, in other parts of the country where that may, or other parts of the world where that may be less true. But certainly here in Oklahoma, yes, the sun can be like a physical force upon you right there at the height of summer, and that is what Frodo is feeling now, too. But notice that we don't get the same confirmation of Sam's interpretation of Gollum right now. Gollum probably felt something of the same sort. But what went on in his wretched heart between the pressure of the eye and the lust of the ring that was so near and his groveling promise made half in the fear of cold iron, the hobbits did not guess. Half in the fear of cold iron there, I think we're calling back to, to old notions of fairy and the ability of cold iron to pierce and to bind and to kill outright fairies and fairy folk. Elves, too, of course, in, in, in Tolkien's tradition here. The hobbits did not guess what was going on in his wretched heart. Frodo gave no thought to it. Sam's mind was occupied mostly with his master, hardly noticing the dark cloud that has fallen on his own heart. So Sam is now falling under a darkness, too. He's not really thinking about... Gollum, despite what we're told in the first paragraph of this slide, he's focused mostly on Frodo and on serving Frodo. Now, he may have, because Frodo was oftentimes lagging behind and he has to make Gollum wait and, and then they have to catch up and he has to go and retrieve him and, and he's got to coordinate the party in this sense, now he makes Frodo walk in front of him and he takes the slower pace, supporting him, supporting him if he stumbled and trying to encourage him with clumsy words. Yeah. Seastar says in the chat, oh, oh, Katie says in the chat first, this is very good. G Gollum's fawning reminds me of Wormtongue, servile and whispering dark words. Katie, that's an excellent pull. Yes, a lot of similarity there between, between Gollum and Wormtongue, yeah. And of course, the dark influence of Sauron, manipulating both. Seastar says, it's always hard to watch someone compassionate pitted against someone in desperate need of compassion, wanting to root for both of the wonderful people. And in Sam's place, I would probably feel as he does. As Tolkien said in The Hobbit, you can see things differently when you're sitting at home without the danger of being eaten to disrupt your thoughts. Yes, very good, right? We want Frodo to be successful in his, not even in his quest, not even in his goal, but in his desire, a, a partially self-serving desire, absolutely, right? A partially selfish desire for Gollum's healing and restoration. We want Frodo to be successful in that because we don't want, as readers, I think we don't want people to suffer. Gollum is a tragic figure. Yes, Smeagol killed Deagle and took the ring when it was found on the banks of the Anduin, or found from within the depths of the Anduin. That occurrence took place on the banks of the Anduin, of the Great River. Yes. Though even then, I would argue, as I did argue back when we discussed this story, when Gandalf told it in Chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, I wondered to what extent Smeagol was already under the manipulation of the ring. I wondered to what extent this was the first example of a ring-induced desire, a ring-induced fury, a ring-induced domination. Certainly everything that happens thereafter with Smeagol taking the ring back to his community and going invisible and spying and learning all the gossip and learning all the secrets and sneaking and slinking from place to place until he's finally exiled by his, by his grandmother, exiled from his community. That seems completely consistent with our understanding of the ring and what the ring does to creatures like Smeagol, to creatures like Bilbo, to creatures like Frodo. And of course, unlike Bilbo... Frodo, uh, excuse me, unlike Bilbo, Smeagol, Gollum, did not take up the ring in a spirit of pity and compassion. 
You know, as we discussed last week, Bilbo spares Gollum's life and Gandalf credits that to the lack of an influence over Bilbo of the ring. Smeagol did not have that pity, did not have that, that, that redemption, I suppose, encoded into his experience with the ring. It was very, very different for Smeagol. But Smeagol remains a tragic figure. We want him, I think, as readers to be restored. We want to believe that there is ultimately hope. But it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. Sam is like a parent, says uh, Heroes and Bards. Sam is like a parent with two toddlers who want to go in opposite directions. Yeah, Sam needs reins. That's what it is. He just needs to strap a little thing around, around Frodo. If he can't use the elven rope to bind Smeagol, at least he can use the elven rope to bind Frodo. No wandering off, Master Frodo. If you wander off, I won't get you a cookie. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into... Um, okay, we've got to pick up with, with On the Fifth Morning here. We just need a little more preparatory detail, and then we're going to get our conversation with Gollum. At last, on the fifth morning, since they took, the, to, took to the road with Gollum, they halted once more. Before them, dark in the dawn, the great mountains reached up to roofs of smoke and cloud. Out from their feet were flung huge buttresses and broken hills that were now at the nearest scarce a dozen miles away. Frodo looked round in horror. Dreadful as the dread marshes had been and the arid moors of the no-man lands, more loathsome far was the country that the crawling day now slowly unveiled to his shrinking eyes. Even to the mirror of dead faces some haggard phantom of green spring would come, but here neither spring nor summer would ever come again. Here nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and grey as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. They had come to the desolation that lay before Mordor, the lasting monument to the dark labour of its slaves that would endure when all their purposes were made void. A land defiled, diseased beyond all healing, unless the great sea could enter in and wash it with oblivion. I feel sick, said Sam. Frodo did not speak. The desolation of Mordor here, of course, calling to mind the desolation of Smaug. And back in the pages of The Hobbit, we discussed what the desolation was and what it meant. And at that time, it seemed as though we could infer a certain a certain reciprocal action between the presence of evil and the, the, the corruption, the, the blighting of the land around. Smaug takes up residence in the Lonely Mountain, and thus there is a desolation around him, right? The necromancer takes up residence in Dol Guldur, and the inky blackness spreads forth through Mirkwood, corrupting the spiders and challenging even the kingdom of the elves. Darkness begets darkness. The shadow begets the shadow. This desolation is inevitable. But look... Here, there's more happening here than just that. This is not a consequence of Mordor's presence, or, or not a natural and indirect consequence of, of the presence of evil in Mordor. This is something more purposeful. They had come to the desolation that lay before Mordor, the lasting monument to the dark labor of its slaves that should endure when all their purposes were made void, a land defiled, diseased beyond all healing, unless the great sea should enter in and wash it with oblivion. This land has been destroyed. This land has been ruined and poisoned and made bare and barren. And as I think it was Seastar was calling out earlier, yeah, even the dead marshes are alive compared to this. Even the, the, the horrifying, you know, leprous growths, as, we, as we're described here, um, even that, that sickly and, and, and poisonous environment is still alive. Some kind of spring will come to the marshes. Some kind of summer will emerge there. It may not be great, and you probably wouldn't want to visit. You may not want to have a summer home in the fire swamp, it turns out. But something will come. Life will come. 
Not so here on the blasted plains before Moranon the Black Gate. And Varig of Khand is calling it out exactly. Dark satanic mills. Referencing, of course, Jerusalem there. This is... <sighs> One of the most powerful, and, and again, you know, th this is by no means a new theme for Professor Tolkien, right? The desolation of Smaug, the fall of Erebor in the first place, the kind of corruption of Lake Town, the the dark fate of the dwarves of Moria, the the blasting of Isengard, and the the, the dark industry contained within within Nankurinir. You know, all of these are, are examples of Tolkien's perspective on industry. And you'll remember what it is, I'm sure, because I've talked about it several times, I think, already in there and back again, what it is that Tolkien abhors about this kind of industry. It is not the fashioning of things. It is not craft. It is not art. It is not even creation itself. It's not even the making of things. What it is that Tolkien abhors about this kind of industry is its dehumanizing influence. It removes agency. Men did not do this to the lands outside of Moranon. Slaves did. That's clear there in the text. The lasting monument to the dark labor of its slaves that should endure when all their purposes were made void. Slaves did this. People who had already been dehumanized did this. And thus it dehumanizes still further and ultimately goes beyond simple dehumanization, which exceeds anything that we've seen thus far with the possible exception of, of the desolation of Smaug, right? It doesn't just dehumanize. Here we have de-lifed. Here we have removed not just... The, the works of man and, and society and civilization and culture and community, we haven't just eradicated those things from this landscape, we have eradicated all life from this landscape. Far worse, of course, the, the ultimate example. And of course, yes, uh, uh, choked with ash and crawling mud, sickly white and gray as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. Yeah, that's not actually, if you've read the letters of Professor Tolkien, that's not actually a million miles away from how he described, you know, the industrial towns in the north of England, for example. He spent some time in Leeds, and yeah, I mean, at that time in particular, and of course, that's not even thinking about the the, the mechanisms of war, you know, the, the, the military-industrial complex, as we might refer to it now in the early 21st century, but but the, the, the makings of munitions and weapons here, the ultimate perversion of the natural world for, for Professor Tolkien, yeah. Um... Let me see as I scroll back. I think there was a question here that I missed. Okay, if you guys have questions, throw them in the little questions chat because sometimes they, they, they pass, I'm afraid. But you can uh, click the little ask a question button and I will, uh, I will be able to pull that out here. Um, Heroes and Bard says, is there an implication that the slaves were killed after their work was finished here? The implication I take to be uh, killed, yes. But my implication here is that they were destroyed during the Battle of the Last Alliance. I mean, one of the reasons that this landscape is so so ruined and choked is that, A, it was used in the, the creation of munitions and, and, and dark industry for the purposes of Mordor back at the end of the Second Age and the, the last time Sauron tried to conquer the world, effectively, where you know his, his forces were foiled only by the Last Alliance of, of men and elves. But also... Um, that this was the battlefield. This was part of the battlefield. This is kind of an extension of the, the plains of Daggerlad here, right? The, the battle plain, literally. That, that's the meaning there. So not only were, were these lands put to dark purpose, then they were the scene of the final battle themselves, as the, as the battle was brought to Moranon, as the battle was brought to the Black Gate. Yeah, yeah. Varric of Khand is just calling out the industrial cities in the north of Britain. Yeah, Leeds, Manchester, Glasgow, uh, yeah, Liverpool to a certain extent. My own beloved Aberdeen was an industrial city for, for a long while, uh, mostly shipping, but yeah, was, was uh, 
yes, certainly blighted by industry in the way that many, many of the great cities were blighted by industry. You know, I, I think the Industrial Revolution triggered an enormous expansion in, in technology and in social advancement and political advancement, though it was by no means an easy process, right? A very, very, very difficult process, which is regretful in a number of ways, but it did trigger an enormous period of expansion. But yeah, it did leave blights, did leave marks. And some places, you know, places like Glasgow, places, I'll speak of, of Scotland more than Northern England because I have much more direct experience of, of Scotland, but places like Glasgow, places like Dundee, places like Aberdeen, these cities have still to recover. They've still to recover from the, the industry of the early 20th century, you know, that has long since faltered. Yeah, just ask Dickens, says Heroes and Bards. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good. Okay, let's, um, let's, push on. Um, I only have a few minutes left and we've got to cover three more slides and we've got to cover the conversation with Gollum. Here we go. Suddenly, Sam woke up thinking that he heard his master calling. It was evening. Frodo could not have called for he had fallen asleep and had slid down nearly to the bottom of the pit. Gollum was by him. For a moment, Sam thought he was trying to rouse Frodo. Then he saw it was not so. Gollum was talking to himself. Smeagol was holding a debate with some other thought that used the same voice but made it squeak and hiss. A pale light and a green light alternated in his eyes as he spoke. Smeagol promised, said the first thought. Yes, yes, my precious, came the answer. We promised to save our precious, not to let him have it, never. But it's going to him. Yes, nearer every step. What's the hobbit going to do with it, we wonders? Yes, we wonders. I don't know. I can't help it. Master's got it. Smeagol promised to help the master. Yes, yes, to help the master, the master of the precious. But if we was master... Then we could help ourselves, yes, and still keep promises. But Smeagol said he would be very, very good, nice hobbit. He took cruel rope off Smeagol's leg. He speaks nicely to me. Very, very good, eh, my precious? Let's be good, good as fish, sweet one. But to ourselves, not hurt the nice hobbit, of course. No, no, but the precious holds the promise, the voice of Smeagol objected. Then take it, said the other, and let's hold it ourselves. Then we shall be master, Gollum. Make the other hobbit, the nasty, suspicious hobbit, make him crawl. Yes, Gollum, but not the nice hobbit. Oh, no, not if it doesn't please us. Still, he's a baggins, my precious. Yes, a baggins, a baggins stole it. He found it, and he said nothing, nothing. We hates Bagginses. No, not this Baggins. Yes, every Baggins, all peoples that keep the precious. We must have it. Here are the arguments of Gollum and, uh, and Smeagol here. Seastar says, I had so many feelings about the argument. I wanted joy for both Gollum and Smeagol, but that seemed impossible. And Ty is joining us. Ty, thank you so much for joining us. And Nightwolf, Nightwolf, it is apparently your birthday. That seems excellent. I'm very glad to have you here. Yes. Nightwolf says, thank you all. Does this mean I get a gift? My own, my precious. I think we're going to steer away from that. But, um, you know, cupcakes for all, I hereby declare. Cupcakes for all. So we need to do some close textual reading on this slide. We need to do some close textual analysis on the, the conflict between, as I said earlier, not just Gollum and Smeagol, right? Not just two distinct and whole and complete personalities, because I think a, a careful reading of this slide reveals that, in fact, neither of these personalities is as completely fixed as we might expect it to be. There are not two individuals, two personalities operating within Gollum, despite what Sam says here at the beginning. Gollum was talking to himself. Smeagol was holding a debate with some other thought that used the same voice but made it squeak and hiss. Yes, right now, these two 
two impulses within Gollum are in open conflict, and that open conflict is being given voice. The pale light and the green light alternating, right? This is this is Smeagol and Gollum. We can use that as a shorthand, but it's more complex than that. Look, for example, at the way that we use pronouns, the way that we refer to ourself here, ourselves, as we move through this conversation. The first thought, Smeagol promised third person, right? I am Smeagol, I promised, Smeagol promised, said the first thought. Yes, yes, my precious, came the answer. We promised. We. The second voice, the golem voice, always uses this, this plural pronoun. It always associates itself with the Smeagol personality, though also, as we discussed earlier, in referring to itself, himself, the, the gestalt entity that is Gollum, in referring to that entity as we, it also seems to be referring to the ring. That's why Gollum refers to himself, I believe, as Precious, because he is self-identifying in some way with the capital P, Precious. So the we there is arguably Gollum and Smeagol and the ring, the influence of the ring, the shadow of the ring here. Yes, yes, my precious, came the answer. We promised to save our precious, not to let him have it. Him here immediately, the Dark Lord, right? Never, but it's going to him, yes, nearer every step. What's the Hobbit going to do with it, we wonders? Yes, we wonders. Casting doubt on Frodo's ultimate purpose here. And it's very tempting, looking at this conversation, to see it as a product of Gollum's fractured mind. That is to say, it's very tempting, like it's very easy, and God knows I have done this for, for years and years and years reading this book, to see Gollum and Smeagol, two personalities occupying one body. I now realize, reading this text very carefully, that that is not the case. And moreover, I realize that this conversation is less an example of that essential division, less an, uh, less an example of that essential conflict between the two sides of Gollum's nature, you know, the, the angel and the demon here on Gollum's shoulders, respectively and more a product of the influence of the ring. Because when we look at the way that Gollum, the, the Gollum half of this conversation rationalizes his actions, wow, doesn't this sound familiar? Doesn't this sound like Boromir at, at Amonhan? Doesn't this sound like Frodo back in the Shire making the decision to use the ring? Well, Gandalf had said not to use it, but he'd used it, Bilbo had used it plenty of times and he was still in the Shire. This is exactly the kind of rationalization that we associate with the ring. Galadriel too, we've seen this happen again and again and again. We promised to save our precious, not to let him have it. Never. But it's going to him, yes, nearer every step. So we promised to save the precious, to protect the precious, and not to let the Dark Lord have it. Not to let Sauron get his hands on the ring again. But now, the Hobbit is taking the ring to the Dark Lord. That's what's happening. I don't know. I can't help it. Master's got it. Smeagol promised to help the Master. The Smeagol side here holding to the actual promise that he made. Remember when, when, uh, when he, he actually takes the promise? He promises to be very, very good and he promises to keep the ring out of the hands of the Dark Lord. But what he actually promises, the oath that he takes, is to serve the Master of the Precious. Yes, yes, to help the master, says the golem voice. Yeah, okay, okay. Yes, we promise to help the master, the master of the precious, but... What if we were the master of the precious? If you take the ring, then we can absolutely keep our promise. That seems like a rationalization. In fact, one might argue, what better way to keep our promise? Yes, we promised that we would serve the master of the ring, but this hobbit, he's going to do things that we don't agree with. We don't want the, the Dark Lord to get his hands on the ring again. That's going to be very bad. We definitely sh we shouldn't do that. So we can circumvent our promise here. We can live up to the letter of our promise, but not the spirit of our promise. We can serve the master of the ring by being the master of the ring. We can regain 
the precious. Then we serve ourselves, please ourselves. But Smeagol said he would be very, very good. Nice hobbit. He took cruel rope off Smeagol's leg. He speaks nicely to me. Here Smeagol is recognizing the compassion and the empathy and the pity that Frodo has shown him. He took the, the, the nasty rope. I mean, technically Sam was the one who took the rope off the leg, but, you know, it was at Frodo's instruction that Sam unbound Gollum at that point. Yeah, so so this is, this is Smeagol recognizing the goodness of Frodo and feeling, stirring within him an actual loyalty, an actual, you know, uh, a presence here. Um, there's a line here that I wanted to pull in. Now I can't find it. Uh, we'll, we'll circle back around to it. That's just fine. Um, good. Very, very good, eh, my precious? Let's be good. Good as fish, sweet one. But to ourselves, yes. We promised we would protect the ring, which we can do by taking the ring. We promised we would serve the master of the ring, which we can do by becoming the master of the ring. We promised we would be very, very good. Let's be very, very good to ourselves. Gollum rationalizing his decision to take the ring, his desire for the ring is fragmented and beautiful. And again, yeah, he starts calling out good as fish, which I just love. What is Gollum's go-to reference point for things which are good in the world? Fish. Fish are fantastic. Let's, uh, let's keep this, uh, just to kind of recap this last part here. Um, we'll make the other hobbit, the nasty, suspicious hobbit, make him crawl. Yes, Gollum, but not the nice hobbit. No, of course not the nice hobbit. Gollum's just, again, trying to manipulate Smeagol. No, of course, look, okay, so the, the nice hobbit was good to you, so we won't hurt the nice hobbit. But the nice hobbit is a Baggins. Remember what the Baggins did? Remember what the Baggins did when he came to us? Yes. Yes, good, good. Uh, Emily says, um, after all, all Gollum knows about Baggins is, is that they go into dark places where they do not belong, stealing precious things and then flee. So maybe he would guess that Frodo goes in to do something sneaky in Mordor. That's very interesting. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> that classic analogy, we should all try to be good as fish, says Shane. Yeah. You know, we, we all aspire to be as good as fish. Let's look at the second half of this, uh, this conversation. But he'll see. He'll know. He'll take it from us. He sees, he knows, he heard us make silly promises against his orders. Yes, must take it. The wraiths are searching, must take it. Not for him, no, sweet one. See, my precious, if we has it, then we can escape, even from him, eh? Perhaps we grow very strong, stronger than wraiths. Lord Smeagol, Gollum the Great, the Gollum, eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea, most precious Gollum, must have it, we wants it, we wants it, we wants it, but there's two of them, the wig too quick and kill us, whined Smeagol in a last effort, not now, not yet, we wants it, but, and here there was a long pause as if a new thought had wakened, not yet, eh, perhaps not, she might help, she might, yes, no, no, not that way, wailed Smeagol. Yes, we wants it, we wants it. Each time that the second thought spoke, Gollum's long hand crept out slowly, pawing toward Frodo, and then was drawn back with a jerk as Smeagol spoke again. Finally, both arms with long fingers flexed and twitching clawed toward his neck. Sam had lain still, fascinated by this debate, but watching every move that Gollum had made from under his half-closed eyelids. To his simple mind, ordinary hunger, the desire to eat hobbits had seemed the chief danger in Gollum. He now realized that it was not so. Gollum was feeling the terrible call of the ring. The Dark Lord was he, of course, but Sam wondered who she was. 
One of the nasty friends the little wretch had made in his wanderings, he supposed. Then he forgot the point, for things had plainly gone far enough and were getting dangerous. A great heaviness was in all his limbs, but he roused himself with an effort and sat up. Something warned him to be careful and not reveal that he had overheard the debate. He let out a, lo a loud sigh and gave a huge yawn. "'What's the time?' he said sleepily. Sam, playing the part of the uh, waking hobbit there, just kind of adorable, just kind of lovely. Yes, good. So this is the ultimate example of the ring's power play fantasy, right? This is the kind of corruption that we saw most expressly in Boromir and in Galadriel. This is the greatest temptation of the ring. What do you do when you get the ring? Well, Gollum hid under the Misty Mountains before and lived off a fish in his little cave, paddling his little boat, occasionally eating a goblin or two. But that's not enough now. Now Sauron has returned, and the shadow is lengthening, and the Nazgul are growing in power, and the world is becoming more dangerous. Now what does the ring promise? Oh, not a return, not a return beneath the misty mountains, precious. Not that. Now something far greater, something far grander, something more akin to Galadriel becoming a dark queen, or Boromir leading the forces of Gondor, leading the forces forth from Minas Tirith in the final conquest of Mordor, and then presumably setting himself up as a wise and benevolent ruler. And hey, Barad-dur is actually like a really convenient strategic location if you think about it, so I'll probably just make that my new capital. And black's really slimming and I'm getting on in years, so I'm just going to start wearing a lot of black and it's all going to be fine and I definitely won't rule the world like a tyrant. Now, this is what the ring does. Plays to your desire for power. A desire for power that Gollum never felt before, but now exposed to the world, now made vulnerable again. The loss of the ring has told Gollum that the world is wider and more dangerous. The being hunted by Gandalf and by Aragorn, being caught and taken to Barad-dur, being tortured and tormented and released back out into the world, the hunting of the Nazgul overhead, all of these things have shown Gollum that the world is dangerous and he cannot hide he cannot hide and just seek refuge beneath the Misty Mountains, hiding from the yellow face and the white face in the sky. Now he has to seek power instead. If we has it, then we can escape even from him. First thought, okay, the only way that we can be safe, he knows. He heard us make silly promises against his orders. Yes, ah, the Dark Lord's already aware of the fact that we've betrayed him. This is going to go really badly for us, my precious. This is going to go really badly for us, Smeagol. You've got to side with me here. We are in trouble. But if we get the ring, then maybe we can escape. First thought, maybe we can escape. Perhaps we can grow very strong, stronger than wraiths. Perhaps we can be so elevated that we don't have to worry about the Nazgul anymore. And what comes thereafter? Lord Smeagol? Gollum the Great? The Gollum. Eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea. Most precious Gollum. Must have it. We wants it. We wants it. We wants it. And by this point, of course, Smeagol has been convinced. Smeagol has been cowed. Smeagol has been bullied into accepting Gollum's version of events. But there's two of them that wake too quick and kill us, whined Smeagol in the last effort. Not now, not yet. And look at the way that the language has changed, right? They'll wake too quick and kill us. Smeagol's not using the first-person singular pronoun anymore. He's not even using the third-person singular pronoun anymore. Now he is adopting that pattern of speech that was previously unique to the Gollum side of this conversation, that plural pronoun, us, we. He is now associating himself with Gollum, with this fractured personality, and with the ring itself. Smeagol has not been conquered, in a sense. Smeagol has been corrupted. There is more complexity within Gollum than that simple bifurcation of personality there. That's certainly how I read it, at least. 
Then we get the crawling of the hand and, and this moment of, of danger here. Finally, both arms with long fingers flexed and twitching, clawed toward his neck. He's going after Frodo right now and Sam feigns waking so that he can interrupt things because he knows that Gollum is frightened of the fact that there are two of them. He's frightened of the fact that there are two hobbits here. Doesn't want to confront them. The she, of course, will become relevant later. Yes. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's uh, wrap this up. Uh, I really do need to finish because I've got a hard out uh, now, in fact, but we'll push on for just a few more minutes over time and take a look at the last slide of this chapter. In the failing dusk, they scrambled out of the pit and slowly threaded their way through the dead land. They had not gone far because, before they felt once more the fear that had fallen on them when the winged shapes swept over the marshes. Excuse me. They halted, cowering on the evil-smelling ground, but they saw nothing in the gloomy evening sky above, and soon the menace passed, high overhead, going maybe on some swift errand from Barador. After a while, Gollum got up and crept forward again, muttering and shaking. About an hour after midnight, the fear fell on them a third time, but now it seemed more remote, as if it were just passing far above the clouds, rushing with terrible speed into the west. Gollum, however, was helpless with terror and was convinced they were being hunted and that their approach was known. Three times, he whimpered. Three times is a threat. They feel us here. They feel the precious. The precious is their master. We cannot go any further this way. No, it is no use. No use. Pleading and kind words were no longer of any avail. It was not until Frodo commanded him angrily and laid a hand upon his sword hilt that Gollum would get up again. Then at last he rose with a snarl and went before them like a beaten dog. So they stumbled on through the weary end of the night, and until the coming of another day of fear they walked in silence with bowed heads, seeing nothing and hearing nothing but the wind hissing in their ears. So we draw closer and closer to Moranon, yes, um... Uh, Becca is asking, is there something we're supposed to get from the fact that the she is female? Would it be different if it were a he? Um, I would say not. I don't think that this is metaphorically or, or, hmm. I don't think that this is, is different in substance, except that it is indicative of that, that illusion of depth that, that Tolkien praised so much and, and is so fantastic at delivering to the reader here in the pages of the book. The she is specific. It is a specific detail. I don't think that we're supposed to infer anything significant of the, the contrast of the he and the she here, um, at least not, not you know, thematically or metaphorically at this point. But yeah, yes, as Caroline is saying, minor spoilers, she means Shelob, the last spawn of Ungoliant, the dark spider of Carithor. Yeah, we were, yeah, minor, minor spoilers. Shh, it's going to be fine. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, Seastar says, given the complete absence thus far of female villains or monsters in Lord of the Rings, she might help. It's totally unexpected and mysterious. I loved it. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it, it is striking for that reason, but I don't think it's not just a cheap inversion that Tolkien gives us. Sheila was already an established part of the Legendarium at this point, but yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Let's. Um, <laughs> Shane says, no, no, it won't be fine, Alistair. Giant spider. No, that's also fair. That's that's very fair. The Shelob chapters are dark and disquieting. Let me put up the last slide here so you guys can see what we're covering next week because next week's session, book four, chapters three and four, the black gate is closed and of herbs and stewed rabbit. Ladies and gentlemen, Faramir. Next week, 10 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, January the 18th, 2018. 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, next Thursday night. I hope you will all be able to join me. I cannot wait to talk about Faramir, as I have said many times before, and as I will hope to, to illuminate for you all my favorite character in all of the Lord of the Rings, and just the best, best man. The uh, Cedric Diggory, if you will, 
of uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth here. That is going to do it for our conversation today. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure. If you would like to talk more about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, if you would like to talk more about this episode of There and Back Again or any episode of There and Back Again, hey, let me tell you, there's a new place where you can do just that. Head on over to pointnorthmedia.com forum and you can join the new Point North Media forum. We can all hang out there and talk about stories all day long and into the night. There are already a couple of really interesting discussions taking place over there. So I would urge you to uh, go sign up for the forum, go jump into a conversation. Don't be shy. The Point North community is is just extraordinary. All of you fine folks who are joining me here, everyone who is listening to the podcasts at home, you guys are just the greatest, the smartest, the sweetest, the kindest, the most positive people, and I'm very, very glad to be among your fine company. That is going to do it for this episode of There and Back Again. Though I should acknowledge, actually, the forum is now responsible for the end of the show because over on the forum, there was some discussion in the wake of last week's episode of There and Back Again about, about sign-offs. At the end of the Dear Mr. Potter sessions, I get to say mischief managed and wrap things up in a neat and little, you know, thematically, textually appropriate way. And there was some discussion over on the forum about sign-off lines that I could use here at There and Back Again. And I have to say that one wand to save them all came up with my favorite one thus far, and this is the one I'm going to use for now. If you have a better suggestion, head on over to the forum, pointnorthmedia.com forum. But for now, we are going to conclude each of these sessions by saying thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you all again next week. Until then, fly you fools! Fly you fools!